What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another quick solo episode here on the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to talk about how you can buy real estate with no money down and uh, specifically how you can buy multifamily real estate using creative financing or uh, some specific structures around raising capital from investors. Some simple ones is what I want to talk about in this episode. And, uh, and as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about the four that I've used and currently use to buy real estate. Uh, this is a question that I receive all the time online, in person, you know, just in general. It's all about how are you putting these deals together with not a lot of your own dough. So I'm just going to start at the top here, start with a concept that is uh, relatively, I guess, relatively commonly discussed in the real estate business, which is seller financing. So number one is seller financing. And the, the technical definition of seller financing is basically when the buyer and the seller make the financing arrangements uh, between themselves. So, you know, there's no bank involved or there could be a bank. I'll get to that. But but primarily speaking in terms of how it's typically used, there's no bank involved. And uh, basically, it's the buyers borrowing the money from the seller. So instead of the seller taking a big check of their proceeds and going home after closing, they are leaving money on the table and instead financing the purchase for the buyer. So in this situation, from a tactical standpoint, there's a promissory note drawn up like any mortgage with an interest rate, a schedule of payments between the buyer and the seller, uh, you know, a balloon uh, period, if there is one of those, you know, an amortization period, other payments interest only. Basically, all of the traditional debt terms that you would discuss with a traditional lender are discussed with the seller. Um, and this is a way to avoid a lot of the challenges of getting traditional financing, whether it's net worth requirements to get a loan, whether it's your debt to income ratio, if this is a smaller deal and your personal borrowing situation is being under in, whether you have a bad credit score, whether um, you know, whether you just don't have the money to even put down with a traditional mortgage. So you have to have a larger note to buy the, to buy the property. So, you know, I don't want to dive deep into the, to the nuts and bolts of seller financing, cause I want this to be a quicker episode. And I just want to introduce these topics. Um, if any of these stick out to you as something you want to learn more, be sure to go, you know, do the Google deep dive and, and, uh, and learn that way. But from a fundamental standpoint, seller financing is a great way to get into real estate with uh, with a little of your own cash and to and to bypass the traditional underwriting requirements that banks, credit unions, you know, agency lenders might have. So, um, and you can do this. And the last thing I'm going to say on this note is, uh, there's kind of two routes you can go with seller financing. Where uh, if you have a, a seller who has you know maybe owns a property free and clear or has just a really significant amount of equity in the property. They can hold a note back for 80% or 90% of the purchase price, you know, maybe even more, 95, 100% of the purchase price. And that way you're not bringing any capital to the deal. Or they can do a second mortgage, right? And that can layer um, basically underneath a first position mortgage from a bank or another lender. Um, you know, maybe you get a, a bank loan at 70, 75%, you get seller financing at 10, 15, 20%, and then you're left to bring 5 or 10% to the deal or something like that. And you're basically, uh, leveraging up to acquire the real estate. Now, the last note that I'm going to have, and this is going to apply to all of these strategies. So, you know, apply this to everything I talk about is just because you can buy a property with no money down doesn't mean you should. And I feel like I'm obligated to say that right now. Um, you should only be putting these strategies to work when you have a really meaty deal, a deal that you're buying below market value and that will cash flow regardless of the debt that you're layering on the deal or the structure of the deal. So you can't just go in the MLS, pay market, and then just have the seller finance 100% of it, you know, because you're going to be over leveraged. I mean, it's very black and white. So you got to make sure that the deal makes sense, that the actual financing terms make sense, right? The interest rate makes sense. The term on the loan makes sense, etc. So that's number one, seller financing, whether it's a very large first position mortgage or some supplemental financing in the second position. 
Now, number two is using what's called preferred equity. Now, preferred equity is the terminology that's used in kind of the institutional real estate world, the, the private equity real estate world. And, um, you know, if you were to ask somebody who's really sophisticated to explain private equity, they would use the terminology of the capital stack. I'm going to briefly explain what the capital stack is, and then I'm going to talk about pref equity. So the capital stack is terminology used to define where all the capital is coming from to purchase or capitalize a piece of real estate. So for example, in a, um, in a traditional, uh, in a traditional real estate transaction, you have the majority of the capital coming from a lender, coming from debt, right? Call it 70% of the capital is a first position lender, the person providing the debt. And then underneath that, you have equity, right? And equity is the other word for the cash that the buyer is bringing to the closing, their equity that they're bringing to purchase the deal. Um, but if you, if you take a deeper look at the capital stack, there's other components of it beyond that very simplified version, which could be you have the first position lender at 70% of the financing. Maybe you have a second position lender or something like that, otherwise known as mezzanine debt in the institutional world at call it 10%. So now you're at 80% leverage and then you have, you know, 20% in equity or that equity could be broken up into different classes of equity that are compensated in a different way. So for example, to continue using the same example, you have 70% coming from the first position lender. You have 10% coming from the second position lender or the mezzanine debt. You know, maybe the interest rate on the first position loan is 5%. The mezzanine debt is 7%. And then you have what's called preferred equity, right? Let's, let's say that 10% of the equity is preferred equity. And maybe they are compensated with a 9% non-guaranteed rate of return. So they're not, it's not, they don't have a lien against the property. They're equity, right? But they are paid as the money goes down the capital stack, otherwise known as the waterfall. You pay the first lender, you pay the second lender. Then you pay the pref equity until they earn their 9% annually. And then you have all the investors in the common equity, right? And that's the bottom of the capital stack treated. Uh, basically, they get treated <laughs> the worst out of everyone because they also share in the upside. So preferred equity can have um, you know, some smaller percentage of the upside of the deal, or they can have no percentage upside of the deal, but they're compensated with a higher rate of return, a higher preferred return. So I've already spent way too long explaining this, and I'm gonna <laughs> this episode is at risk of running pretty long. Um, but uh, but long story short, that's the capital stack. And preferred equity can be a way for you to raise capital from investors at a higher rate than they would receive if they were lending money because it's slightly riskier because they don't have a lien against the property because it's a non-guaranteed rate of return. And, um, and that way you're not giving up upside in the deal. So let's say you do a deal where you get 75% of the capital from a bank and you raise 10% of the capital from preferred equity and you promise, or you don't promise, excuse me, I want to make very clear that you're not promising, but you're saying that the first 12% of the cash distributions on an annual basis goes to the preferred equity before you get paid as the buyer, right? And now you only got to bring 15% down or whatever the math is there, right? I might have, you know, missed, uh, I might have uh, mixed up the numbers there, but you get where I'm going from a conceptual standpoint. So preferred equity is basically an investor that's treated preferentially to the other investors in the deal. So that's about as far as I want to go on that specific topic. This is all done in an operating agreement. You got to consult an attorney before you do this. You got to raise capital in a compliant way before you do this. But it's a way to raise money without giving up upside in a deal. And uh, and it's just you know it's a very simplified way to raise capital because it's very easily explained to investors. So number two, preferred equity. Number three is second position debt. 
which I just talked about the capital stack, right? You got first position lenders, you got second position lenders, then you got, you know, the equity and the different classes of equity. So above preferred equity is second position debt. And um, just as it sounds, just a lender that's not treated as preferentially as the first position lender because they are a smaller component of the capital that's being invested in the deal. But they probably have a lien on the property, right? There's a, there's a lien on the deed. They are going to get paid at closing before any of the owners or investors or equity holders do. And uh, it's just debt, right? It's just, you know, it's very simple. It's just debt. Um, so, you know, we've raised a ton of second position financing um, over, you know, over our career in buying deals with aligned real estate partners, um, you know, where we have what, primarily it's private lenders who supplement a bank's first position loan. So maybe we got a bank at 70 percent and then we got a private lender at, you know, 15 percent coming in between nine and 12 percent interest paid monthly interest only, maybe a two year term, three year term. And, um, and we just pay them monthly like it, like you do any lender. And then we're, we're basically reducing the cash we have to bring to closing. Maybe we don't have to bring 7%, 10%, 12%, what have you. Uh, the critical components of this is again, you need to buy a deal below market value before you do any of this. Because if you just start layering second position financing on deals that you're paying market value for, you're over leveraged and your deal is likely going to have trouble cash flowing unless there's some unique component to this deal or you're buying in a market that is extraordinarily cash flow heavy. So again, remember that if you, if you default on a first position lender, second position lender, third position lender, whoever, they can file foreclosure, right? And they can start foreclosure proceedings, which is not something that Pref Equity can typically do unless that's you know, what they negotiate as part of their deal, right? So I don't want to make any absolute statements here, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay making those specific statements. So second position financing, again, is, is a strategy. And the last thing I'll mention on this is that if you have a traditional lender in the first position, Oftentimes, they are not going to be too thrilled about somebody coming in in the second position as a lender. So before you start going down this road, before you just assume that your local bank or, or your local credit union is going to be down for Uncle Tommy to come in and give you a second position mortgage, and then you get to closing and they see that on the HUD statement and they're like, what the hell? We're not lending on this deal. You got to make sure you, you have these conversations up front. You got to make sure that the debt service coverage ratio between both the loans um, is sufficient to satisfy both the lenders. You got to make sure you're not over leveraging. But again, it's a strategy that you can leverage. And the fourth and the final strategy that we use, um, and this is just fundamentally uh, private equity real estate, which is a really intimidating way to describe it. But that's really the only terminology I really know how to use to describe this is just simple, limited partner, general partner structures with a preferred return. Um, this is how the vast majority of syndicated real estate deals are structured. This is a structure that is a tale as old as time. I feel like this has been something that's common in the private equity world, the private equity real estate world, private equity business world, what have you. And it's basically you have the GP, otherwise known as the sponsor, who is finding the deal, raising the money, operating the deal, signing on the loan, doing all of the things required to successfully operate a real estate deal and to, um, you know, to, to, to arrive at a successful outcome um, upon sale, you know, what have you, right? When the deal closes out, they are the sponsor. And then they raise capital from limited partners and the limited partners invest varying dollar amounts of money to, to fund the deal. Let's say you got a you know, $10 million deal, you need $3 million in equity. Maybe the sponsor puts up some marginal amount, 50 grand, 100 grand, 150 grand, whatever, maybe a little bit more. You know, Again, this is all negotiable. This is all deal dependent. But then they raise the other $2.9 million from investors. And these investors are compensated typically with what's called a preferred return. And a preferred return is a non-guaranteed rate of return that is paid to investors out of cash flow or at sale up to a certain number. Usually it's between 6 and 9%, somewhere in that range. 
And then once investors are, have, have been compensated with that preferred rate of return, there's a split above that. Um, and usually that splits anywhere from 50-50 to 80-20. You know, 20% going to the sponsor, 80% going to the limited partners. Or there's, you know, again, it's all deal dependent. It's all what you negotiate. It's all what the sponsor thinks is, you know, they can sell investors on. It's all what investors need to see in order to feel comfortable investing in a deal. So there's no absolutes here, but that's typically what's normal. 6 to 9% preferred return, 50-50 to 80-20 split. 70-30 is a really, really popular one. And it's basically, you know, the sponsor, what they're, how they're making money is they're making their portion of the split above that preferred rate of return. And, uh, and when you think about the capital stack, you have the debt, they're getting paid their fixed percent or floating rate, whatever it is, they get their, you know, let's just use a number, for example, sake. they're getting their 5%, but they're not getting any upside in the deal. Then you got your equity below that, they're getting their, you know, 8% preferred return, but they are also entitled to 70% of the upside in the deal. And maybe, you know, because they have some upside over the life of the deal, the projections are they'll make, you know, 17.5% annualized returns. And then the sponsor is taking that 30%. Um, and, you know, maybe over the life of the deal, they're, you know, they're going to make, call it 30, 40, 50% on their money that they have because they only have a small chunk of money in the deal and they're getting an outsized percentage of the upside of the deal. Um, comparatively to the capital that they have in the deal themselves. And that's the reward for the sponsor doing all of the freaking work that takes to get these deals done, which is a lot. And obviously I'm speaking biased as a sponsor myself. So long story short, those are the four ways we put deals together without a lot of money, without our own money. Um, the first three are much more easily implemented than the last one. Um, anything to do with debt is a lot more easy to implement than anything to do with raising capital from investors. And that's just a kind of a broad based rule of thumb. And um, I would highly recommend that if you listen to this and a lot of this feels new to you, that you just educate yourself on the fundamentals of the capital stack, right? I talked about it a little bit in this episode, but it will serve you so well to just look up what is the capital stack? What are the, how, how is debt treated differently than equity? What are the different types of equity? What are the different types of debt? And to familiarize yourself with where the capital comes from that puts these real estate deals together. Once you understand the fundamentals, then you understand the risk profile associated with using these different strategies. And then you can understand how you can actually use them in your business in a safe way. Um, because everyone just wants to go, how do I get money from investors? Blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, hold on, take a step back. Are you even familiar with the different uh, ways that you can structure a real estate deal? Because if you're not, you're not going to be able to speak intelligently about this with investors. And you're honestly not in a, in a position to successfully steward investor capital, right? You might raise money, get lucky on a deal and do well. But, you know, when you start raising money, this game becomes a very, very, very different game. And I just want to drive that home to end this episode. So again, you got to find great real estate deals to do any of this stuff with to provide investors an adequate return or to safely use some of these creative financing structures as it relates to debt. And if you want to learn how to find great deals, time for me to shamelessly plug our awesome off-market deals course. Um, be sure to check it out. Uh, I'm going to have a link in the description or the show notes, I should say. Uh, if you're a multifamily investor that wants to build a robust pipeline of discounted off-market deals or to just better build a pipeline if you already have one now and to do so in a much more predictable and scalable fashion, you have to check out our course. Um, we just have so many people in it that are just crushing it. And I, I really believe in the content we've put together. So uh, that link is going to be in the show notes. And um, again, that's multifamilywealtheducation.com slash off market, one word. And uh, thanks again for listening. Love you guys. Appreciate the support uh, in the podcast. Download numbers have been going through the moon. 
recently. And, um, you know, share this with your friends, share this with your network. If you think that they're going to get some value out of it, but, uh, done self-promoting and thanks again for listening. I'll catch you guys next time.